0: Today's message, I hope, will kind of continue to set a trajectory for this church in uh, how you deal with each other as uh, members of the body of Christ. T- today's message is uh, a very practical message. In fact, the text we're in is a go-to text in biblical counseling training. You'll see some of that later. And so I know Michael's been in the Gospel of Luke, and some I'm sure some of those have been um, evangelistic, and some of those have been very theological. Today is a, an extremely hands-on, practical, what-do-Christians-do-with-each-other kind of message. So I want to just uh, say a, a short prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and so we just ask that you would come now by the power of your spirit and unleash your word in this place and so that we can look back in a week or a month or years ahead and say the Word did the work, the Word did it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Lazy Larry, he won't work, but he has plenty of time and energy to get involved with everybody else's business. And yet, he rarely gets any pushback on that among his church members. And then there's downcast Denise, she has faced a series of setbacks in her life that have one by one systematically undermined her peace and her joy, and she comes to church, and she sits down, and the tears stream down her face, and that's really not unusual or surprising, but what is surprising is that no one notices, and no one says anything to downcast Denise. And there's feeble Francis who didn't even make it to church last month. And the question is, will anyone notice? Will anyone miss her? Will anyone see that she's not among us and give her a call and reach out to her in the name of Christ? Today, beloved, is a message about your responsibility as members of the body of Christ and our responsibility as Christians toward each other in the fellowship, and even more specifically, as you note in the title, toward troubled members or struggling saints. What are we to do with disheartened disciples or meandering members who are in and out and in and out? The truth is, unruly happens even in the church. I know. A shocking statement to you. Unruly takes place among believers, and some Christians, believe it or not, actually get discouraged and even depressed. And that's where you, as the body of Christ, come in. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, this message is primarily for you. And I want to just remind you of just that little phrase, "Body of Christ." How phenomenal is that phrase? We are the hands and feet. Of Jesus himself we are the ones who are to pursue the troubled or struggling member we're not to be shocked we're not to be surprised we're not to say well this is not supposed to happen in the church says who (laughs) no we are to actually expect that we will find struggling saints disheartened disciples and meandering members and this is where the privilege of being a Christian comes in where you get to be the very hands and feet of Christ himself Well, let's set the context. I read the scripture this morning from 1 Thessalonians 5, so join me there if you haven't already. 1 Thessalonians 5. And I just recently almost finished preaching through this entire letter in our church in Kerrville. And I think it's important that we see the context of not only the scripture reading passage this morning, but also the text for the sermon, which is a couple of verses kind of in the middle of it. As I was going through this in our church, I called this series when I began in verse 12, Life in the church, this side of heaven. And then each part had a particular angle on it. The first part was dealing with uh, your attitude toward church leadership. That's in verses 12 and 13. And then in our passage, verses 14 and 15, ministering to struggling members. And so it goes. But the greater context really takes us back to chapter 4 and Paul's teaching on the rapture of the church, the snatching away of believers. And he talks about that in chapter 4 at the end, and he, and he tells us what's going to happen when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, right? And the voice of an archangel and the blast of a trumpet, and those who are dead in Christ will be raised first, and then those who are alive will be caught up together to meet them in the air, and thus will always be with the Lord. And Then he comes into chapter 5, and he begins to talk about the day of the Lord, that this rapture event is going to trigger a series of increasing judgments upon the earth called the day of the Lord. It's a day of God's wrath. And he talks about that in chapter five. And he reminds us as believers that we have not been destined for wrath, but we have been destined for salvation. Amen. Praise the Lord. Destined for salvation. Can y'all hear me? Are y'all with me? I got to make sure. I need a little, I need a little feedback here. All right. This air is different for me. It's kind of drowning. I feel like I'm drowned out. So I just, you know, give me a little feedback every once in a while. So anyhow, he is talking about the day of the Lord, and he's talking about how believers are not destined for wrath. Verse nine, and we are to encourage one another as we wait for the Lord's return. As the world goes down the tubes, we are setting our sight on our eternity with Christ. But then he comes in verse twelve, and he gets real practical, and he unleashes a series of about fifteen commands staccato fashion, machine gun fire fashion, that goes all the way through verse 22. And these are commands then that tell us in the church how to live this side of heaven. While we wait for the rapture, while we wait for the day of the Lord to be unleashed on the the planet, what belongs to us in the meantime? And so we're going to hone in then on verses 14 and 15. Let me read those. Once again, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the fainthearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Because of verses 12 and 13... Where Paul had begun in verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who labor among you. The question comes up about our text is Paul addressing the elders of the church now, or is he still addressing the whole church? And I think the weight of evidence falls on the second. He called them brethren, you see that in verse 12? we request of you brethren, and now again in verse 14, we urge you brethren. It's the same brethren. It's, it's the church. He's saying in verse 14, we urge you church, admonish the unruly. This is not just for elders or just for pastors. They can't do it all. It's impossible. It's an impossible task. And so this is set before us then as something, a, a series of commands for every member. Here's my big idea this morning. Here's the here's the proposition of this message, okay? Each believer is to be deeply and lovingly involved in the lives of other believers. The Bible has no place for a lone ranger Christianity, no place for the lone wolf because the lone wolf is a dead wolf, no place for the lone sheep out here on its own pasture by itself being a hermit. That is not biblical Christianity. Every believer is to be deeply and lovingly involved in the lives of other believers. Now, even in a church this size is a good size. There's no way that everybody here can be deeply involved in everybody's life. And so this is obviously going to involve circles of friends and circles of involvement. What we're going to see in this passage are five proofs then of that statement. Five pieces of evidence that this is absolutely true of biblical Christianity. Proof number one is we are to admonish the disorderly. Okay, so our proposition is deeply involved in the lives of others. Proof number one, admonish the disorderly. I I feel like we just jumped into the deep end of the swimming pool, right? I mean, Paul starts with the hardest one, (laughs) right? I mean, this is a great challenge. Admonish the the disorderly. Literally, warn the person who is out of order. Warn them. They're out of place or out of line. They are to be called out. If they are believers, Paul is saying to correct the soldier who breaks rank. You know, we're marching together in line. We're at a, a common goal and a common purpose. And then all of a sudden you've got a soldier who who wants to break rank and slow down the pace or veer off to the left or the right. And it's the responsibility, Paul is saying, of not just the captain or not just the commander, but it's the responsibility of the other soldiers to get that person back in line. Paul tells us here then to admonish the insubordinate, the lazy, the disruptive, or the idle. In fact, we can expand the picture of what Paul has in mind, the very difficulty that was taking place in this church. If you'll turn over to 2 Thessalonians with me. and my Bible, is just one page to chapter 3, and this will really fill out the picture of what's going on here and what Paul has uh, in mind to deal with. So uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, now we command you brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, there it is, keep away from them. It leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's kind of like my favorite verse with my kids at home. I don't know, parents, I just commend this verse to you. Just, this is this is free, It's just kind of by the way. <laughs> I've, I've said this to my kids as they've been growing up. What a great verse. Anyway, verse 11. For we hear that some among you, some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like what? Busybodies. Busybodies. Meddling in everybody else's affairs and not taking care of their own life. Verse 12. Now, such persons... I mean, these are Christians, folks. These are people in the church. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Don't be mooching off of others. Don't be a leech. Don't be a taker, taker, taker. Get to work. Mind your own business. And we command this, Paul's saying. This was a problem in this church because it was a problem in their culture. The ideal in the Greco-Roman culture is to sit around and study philosophy and sit around and talk about it and hire servants to do all the work for your life, you know? It's not too far-fetched from where we're going as a country. We're in so many circles and pockets. The ideal is to see how fast I can get on disability, right? I mean, that's kind of where our country is. And Paul is saying, Christians, you got to be different. I came there, and I showed you a work ethic, and you need to have that kind of work ethic. But some didn't. Verse 13, but as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary of doing good, okay? So don't become so hardened and jaded that you don't ever do any good to those who are struggling and who have legitimate needs. So that kind of rounds out the picture of who Paul had in mind in that particular church that fell under the category of unruly or insubordinate. And these folks are to be lovingly admonished, admonished. Now, how do you do this? how do you do this? Very carefully, right? (laughs) Very humbly, very lovingly. Make sure you're prayed up. Make sure this is not a personal vendetta or an axe to grind. Uh, Make sure that that your motive is not to bring down, but to correct and build up. You got to do this very carefully. The bottom line is, when you and I see the unruly, when we witness the insubordinate, when this becomes either egregious or a pattern of behavior, and this person is a member of our church and they're a professing believer in Christ, when we see that, when we witness that, we have a duty upon us to address it. We are to admonish that person until the unruly is ruled by Jesus. We are to exhort and come alongside and bring to their attention. You know, we all have blind spots, don't we? I mean, that's what makes them blind spots. We all have them. And, and part of a body of Christ is when there's enough love and deep involvement that we can lovingly help each other see our blind spots. So that's proof number one of deep involvement. Paul, uh, again, jumps into the deep end of the pool and, and starts perhaps with the most challenging Proof number two is we are to console the faint-hearted, console the faint-hearted. Now, I'm thankful that in most churches I've ever been in, the unruly are usually a very small minority. In fact, they don't usually stay one place long. They bounce around because they don't want to be in line, right? I mean, that's kind of the nature of unruly. But I think the second one is far more common, far more prevalent will be not the person who is disruptive, but the person who is downcast, disheartened, faint-hearted. We are to comfort the defeated. We are to encourage the discouraged. It's an interesting word here in verse 14. The word for faint-hearted in Greek is actually little soul little soul and so is the person from whatever reason series of events maybe some of it's they have responsibility in maybe they have no guilt whatsoever just life and so their soul was once robust and healthy and strong and over time it just kind of gets contracted think of it like the grape you know that becomes the raisin I mean, it's still there. It's still a soul, but it's just withdrawn and it's little and it's hurting. If we think about these people Paul's writing to, they were facing persecution right out of the gate of their conversion. They profess faith in Christ and lost their job. They profess faith in Christ and their family members said, bye, see you. I don't know you. I don't love you. You're out of my family. Because when they accepted Christ, they said no to about 20 gods and goddesses that their friends and neighbors worshiped. They were saved out of deep pagan idolatry. And so they had to count the cost. And some of them, most of them, were already being persecuted. So just imagine this for a moment. This could very well be why some are faint hearted. My, my life is good. I've got a job. I've got a spouse. I'm, I'm maximizing my pleasure by pursuing the false gods of my culture. And then I hear about this Jesus who says he's the Lord of all, and he died on the cross for my sins, and I'm going to go to hell if I don't repent and believe in him and put all of my trust in him, and and I'm promised forgiveness, and I'm promised eternal life, and glory, and joy, and peace, and I do all of that, and then my life falls apart. (laughs) Then everything gets hard. Everything gets difficult. And so, just in weakness, just in human flesh, people are backing up and going, "Whoa, did I make the right decision?" And they're scratching their heads, going, "I'm not sure about this Christianity thing." And so they're becoming faint-hearted. And Paul says, "Encourage them. Put courage into their soul, so that they will move on and go forward with Christ." Encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted. And you say, "Wow, that's not very spiritual. That's not very impressive." That somebody to be persecuted and actually become weaker instead of stronger. Oh, well, may I remind you of who Jesus said was the greatest person to ever live? May I remind you of John the Baptist? The man's man, the preacher's hero, if there ever was one. And he gets arrested and he's thrown in prison. And John the Baptist says... Will someone go to him and ask him if he is the one? Or are we to expect another? That passage blows my mind. This is the same guy that stood on the shore there and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is now in a low place. He is little sold. And he's asking, is this the Messiah? I mean, if John the the forerunner doesn't know this is the Messiah, did Jesus drop the hammer on John the Baptist? Did Jesus tell them to go rebuke him? Lecture him? Scold him? Jesus very gently, very lovingly says, go and tell John... What you have heard and what you have seen. Go and tell John about the evidence that he knows to look for in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And John will be fine. He was little-souled, not unruly. Perhaps Paul has in mind that some of these believers in Thessalonica had lost their loved ones. We know that from chapter 4. They had lost fellow believers and they were grieving. They were hurting In fact, the word here for encourage is the same word used in John 11 of consoling Mary at the loss of Lazarus, her brother. The Jews were consoling Mary. And so we know from chapter 4 that some of these folks a year ago, about when Paul writes, it's been about a year, some of these folks had, had been saved and then they died. There's some fresh wounds of God's providence in the church and they need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged. Now, if you were to ask me how, Chris, how do you console the faint-hearted? I would tell you, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> you guys that know me are laughing because... I struggle with this myself. In fact, my wife's little nickname for me is My Precious Prophet. <laughs> that's what she calls it. Isn't that sweet? My Precious Prophet. She'll put on stuff MPP. You know, it's just our little thing there. Because that's just kind of how I'm wired. I'm just black and white, right and wrong. I'm, I'm much quicker to be the admonisher, the corrector, than the encourager. It's a challenge. It is a challenge. But I can read books and I can not observe other people who are good at this. And so here are some things I've witnessed and received that I want to share with you. Okay, I want to get real practical now. How do you do this? We all know someone or will know someone that's in this category. I'm going to give you some non-verbals and some verbal ways to do this, okay? Of course, a non-verbal way to encourage the faint-hearted is a holy hug or holy touch whatever the is appropriate in the situation to put an arm around somebody's shoulder to hold someone's hand at a hospital bed to give a holy hug and to stand close and to pat on the back is a nonverbal critical way to encourage that which is weak another way you can do this is just to sit and listen to someone Old timers say, sit with them, you know, just sit with them. And you just listen. You don't come with answers. You don't come with a Bible study. You don't come with a sermon preacher, you know, prophet, zip it, you know, (laughs) just sit down and listen and let that person tell you and open up as to why they are where they are. And sometimes that's enough, isn't it? Sometimes it's just enough to talk about it. It's just enough to get it out there and to know someone knows. Some of you are more hands-on, more practical or servant's hearts. And and so you might go mow someone's yard. Maybe they've been in the hospital for a while. Maybe they've been out of town on work. Maybe the stay-at-home mom is struggling just to keep everything going. As dad travels, you go mow their grass or cook them a home-cooked meal or maybe take a gift. Some of you love to make gifts or buy gifts and really think about that other person. And and so get a gift and, and share that. Here's something we don't often think about because we get so serious when, every, you know, when somebody's discouraged or grieving or whatever. We tend to, at least I do, we get kind of real morbid about things and super serious. Maybe we just need to invite them to go do something fun, you know? Let's go on a bike ride. Let's go canoe a river. Let's go to a ball game. Let's just go do something fun, good, clean fun as Christians and help that person get their mind off of this for a little while. That's a godly thing to do. That's a loving thing to do. We don't have to be all serious all the time. Here are some verbal ways, okay? Here are some verbal ways to console the faint-hearted. I mean, say this. I mean, literally say these words. We will walk with you. This is a great, this is a great line for elders and biblical counselors to use. We will walk with you through this, okay? Or, just two little words, Me too. Okay, can you can you learn to say that? <laughs> can you learn to say that when somebody's opening up to you and they're struggling? Me too, right? I understand what you are feeling. Here's a very important one. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are loved. Or how about this one? You just pick up the phone and they answer and just say, you know what? I was thinking about you today. How are you? Now how hard was that? You, you got them on your on your phone, you push one button. They answer the phone. You just say I was thinking about you today. How are you? At the end of July, myself and our associate pastor was uh, able to take a little trip down to Mexico to visit one of our missionaries. His name is Chris. And uh, Chris is a single guy, he's 41, and he's been serving way down deep in southern Mexico now for for 10 years. And uh, he came back to the States in 2015, that's the first time he came to the States in five years. And he's uh, he's in Oaxaca State, in a, in a village city of about 20,000 people called Huxilawaka. It took us two days to get to him, and that was flying from Matamoros to Mexico City, Mexico City to Oaxaca City, and driving, 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 driving. So he's pretty isolated. He's got a team down there, but it's a it's a challenging work. One day we were sitting with Chris and two guys that he's discipling and working with, he's pouring his life into, and, and we were beginning to just converse with them, and they were going to maybe ask us questions. Both of them were fairly new in the faith, and And Chris was translating all of this back and forth between Spanish and and English. And so he kind of jumped in and he kind of told his two friends, Nikolai and Alejandro, why we were there. And uh, it really wasn't why we were there. (laughs) And so I stopped him and I said, wait, wait, time out. Stop. I said, Chris, that's not why we're here. It's something about, you know, observing this or that or it was it was kind of. It was kind of vague and not really f- from the heart. And so I said, "No, that's not why we're here." And I said, "You need to tell them that the reason we're here is be- And I'm looking right at him. I said, "It's because of you. We are here to show you that an entire church is with you and behind you, and you are not alone." And he couldn't even translate it. <laughs> he he just—he wasn't expecting me to say that. He got—he just—he just, he just started—he just started tearing up and and struggled to get those words out. And I felt like in the four or five days we were with him, that that was one of the most meaningful, if, if nothing else happened that entire trip, that was one of the most meaningful things that took place, was to say to him, the real reason why we're here is to stand with you. And he was consoled. Proof number three that we are to be deeply and lovingly involved with each other is Help the, what does it say? Weak. Help the weak. Back in verse 14. This is actually a weak translation. So let me give you the Chris McKnight Amplified. (laughs) Hold firm and fast to the powerless, sick, ill, or feeble. That's what Paul means by help the weak. Devote yourself to the one who cannot stand. Cling to the one who is about to to fall. Again, if we think about the context of 1 Thessalonians, maybe they were lacking assurance of their salvation. We can pick up on that through Paul's writings because he really wants to assure them that they were not destined for wrath and he wants to assure them that that they're waiting on Jesus and he will rescue them from the wrath to come. And so maybe you have some believers like you have everywhere who are truly saved but don't know they're truly saved who are truly regenerate but have doubts and struggles that they're regenerate and they're weak in their faith. And Paul is saying here, we need to come alongside these folks and we need to hold them firm and hold them fast and, and really try to strengthen them in that weakness. We need to assure people when we see Christian virtue and Christian fruit, we need to say to them, you know, beloved brother, sister, I see Christ in your life. I know you see nothing but the negative, but I see the life of Christ in you. And these struggles you're having and and these doubts you're having, unbelievers don't have those. Unbelievers just are unbelievers, and unbelievers don't struggle. They just give in to sin. But you're struggling and you're battling, and and that's a sign of Christ in your life. And sometimes there are folks in our churches that need to hear that. (laughs) They need to hear that from one another. Because sometimes all they do is navel gauge, right? They just get locked in on their own life. And, 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 and if you go down that path far enough, you're going to start going, man, am I even saved? The thoughts I have, the words that I've tempted to say, it's horrible. We need to help the weak. Help the weak. I know a dear brother in our church. He's been saved longer than I have, and I've been saved 30 years. And he has struggled with doubts about his salvation his entire Christian life. It actually gets frustrating, you know. (laughs) I mean, you see fruit. And I I was able to tell him a a few months back, would you please put that out of your mind? You You are a Christian. Everybody sees it. Maybe these folks, I told you about their pagan background, in chapter 4 of this letter, Paul will talk to them about holiness. He'll talk to them about sexual purity in chapter 4 because rampant sexual immorality and impurity rule the day in Thessalonica. And so perhaps they're weak, they're freshly saved, maybe they were saved out of a homosexual lifestyle maybe they were saved out of serial fornication maybe they're struggling today with pornography or sexual immorality maybe they're tempted by these things maybe they've even stumbled and fell and they're weak in their sin and and so we are to help them we're to cling to them and to help them get up and move forward in their life the command here help is a very strong word it means hold firm Paul is saying, hold them up. Paul is saying, cling to them. Don't cast them off. Don't discard them like a used soft drink can that just gets tossed on the side of the road. Let somebody else clean it up. Let somebody else pick them up. No, you're there. You saw it. You pick it up, right? You clean it up. I clean it up. This is the way of Jesus, all right? This is the way of Christ, Here's a passage from Isaiah 40 that describes Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Okay? He's going to come back. He's going to reign and rule from Jerusalem with a rod of iron, but that's not the whole story of the reign of Jesus. Listen to these words. They're going to be familiar to you. And what we're going to hear is what it's like to be strong and sensitive, to be tough and tender, and that's Christ. Behold, the Lord God will come with might... With his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ones. The nursing ones. How do we do this? How do we help the weak? Well, we pray when they can't pray. We read to them when they're too weak to read themselves. We hold them up spiritually when they can't hold themselves up. Just a few weeks ago, I was uh, with my dad and my mom and my precious wife, Kim, and we were in Bernie, and we were at the MRI Now location there on... 46 in Bernie. And my mom is 79 years old, and she is the very picture of weak and feeble. She is uh, feeble of, of, uh, of mine with some dementia. She's, uh, she's got scoliosis. She's got osteoporosis. <laughs> she's got arthritis. Her life consists of a lift chair and a walker chair to bathroom back to chair she sits in the chair all day she sleeps in that chair she is the very picture of of physically weak or, or feeble she's also claustrophobic she had to get this mri on her back so we try to figure out what's going on she's in tremendous amount of pain all the time and and so we go to uh this mri now they have an open mri And, uh, I mean, just getting her in a car and out of a car and into the, I mean, it's all an ordeal. It's all a major accomplishment. (laughs) And so we get there into the waiting room, and uh, my mom's really nervous about this. She gets a lot of anxiety. She doesn't fully understand everything that's going on, and she's nervous about going back. And and, uh, we're there in the waiting room, and they say, well, one person can go back. One person. So I'm like looking at my dad, you know, and I'm looking at me and I'm like, no, it's not us. <laughs> no, this, this moment calls for mercy. <laughs> this, this moment calls for someone who will be compassionate. And so uh, without further ado, Kim goes back <laughs> with mom. And uh, it was uh, such a wonderful and beautiful thing that she did. And it is a picture of what I'm talking about here. It is an absolute perfect picture of this. Um, I mean, just getting mom to lay back flat on something is almost terrifying for her. And uh, I knew it was going to be rough. I knew there were going to be tears and fears. And so they go back, and uh, they're back there for a good long while. And they finally come out to the door, and mom's all, she's all flushed and red and and looks pretty... (laughs) Looks like it's been a pretty difficult situation. And I say to Kim, driving home, well, how did it go? And uh, she said, well, it was pretty hard at first, and this and that was going on. And she was getting really upset, and she was crying. I was like, what did you do? She's like, well, I just stood there the whole time, held held her hand off to the side. And and then she said, uh, as it was going on, you know, those things seem to just go on forever and ever. She says, I just started singing to her. And I, I just sing, uh, sang uh Uh, I'll fly away. I'll fly away. I thought that's, see, that's why you're back there (laughs) and not me. (laughs) You know, what? I can't sing, you know? So that would have been a disaster, but that's exactly what the moment called for to help the weak, to help the weak. So I have a question for you today. I have a question for every member of this church. I have a question for the leadership of this church. Here is the question. Will Grace Bible Church of Bernie be a museum of great Christianity or will it be an infirmary for the sick who want to get better? And that is a decision that this church and every church has to make. Will we be a museum for the strong and the faithful and the The the, the disciple of disciples, those who don't miss a beat and are disciplined and are just, boom, driving ahead to Christ and they don't ever blink, don't ever waver. Are we going to be a museum to honor those kind of people? Or are we going to be a hospital that comes alongside the weak and the feeble and the sickly who want to get better? That's a key distinction, isn't it? Who want to get better in Christ. And listen, your answer to that question will be, If you help the weak. That's how every church answers that question. Will Grace Bible Church be strong in doctrine and in compassion? That's the question. Proof number four is verse 14. If you'll look at it with me. Verse 14 at the very end says, be patient with everyone. So the fourth proof of our loving and deep involvement is that we are to put up with everyone. The category has now expanded to all the sons of Adam. Not just church members, not just Christians, but now everyone, literally everyone. As far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, that is who you are to be patient with. Of course, it still includes believers. Paul says to be long-tempered, long-suffering, forbearing, patient with everyone. And when we talk about being patient with people, that implies interaction, does it not? It implies a relationship. I mean, if I leave here today and go my separate ways and you go your separate ways and I never see you again, I don't have to be patient with you. I don't have to be anything with you because there's nothing there. There's no relationship. But where there is interaction, there will be the need for patience. In fact, I'm calling this loving involvement. And here's an example because love is what? patient. Love is patient. Where there is a lack of patience, there is a lack of love. In fact, the deeper you go with people, the deeper you go in your involvement in a church, the more of this you will actually need, right? (laughs) I mean, we find that in marriage, of course. The deeper we go in relationships, the more patience, the more forgiveness. Paul says then to be patient, not irritable. Patient, not demanding, slow to anger, not quick to Demand things. Put up with people, not put out with people. We're to be long-tempered, not short-fused. Now, why did Paul say this at this point? Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. I can think of at least two good reasons why Paul said that now. Number one, listen carefully. Because the unruly and the faint hearted and the weak are slow to change, one admonishment's not going to do it, folks. <laughs> one word of encouragement's not going to fix that person forever. These categories of struggling saints, troubled members require patience that's one good reason I think he says it. The second good reason is because one day one day you're going to be unruly or fainthearted or weak, and you're going to want people to be patient with you, right? You're going to need people to be patient with you. And so we are to be patient. Whenever we're thinking about somebody that's struggling or troubled in any way, we're talking about a spiritual sickness. We're talking about an infirmity of the soul, of of the walk, of the life. And just like when you go to a doctor with a physical problem, Step number one, and the most important thing that takes place is what? Diagnosis. If you don't get the right diagnosis, nothing else will work, nothing else will matter. So it is with spiritual ailments. The diagnosis is critical. We need to step back and look at this person's life, and we need to say, are they disorderly, discouraged, or debilitated? Is this person out of line? out of hope, or out of strength. This is critical because if we comfort the disorderly, we are enabling them, not helping them. It'd be like holding a guy's hand who's driving drunk. You don't hold his hand. You get his butt out of the car, and you make him ride. He's unruly. He needs to be admonished, not comforted. All right? Or if you admonish the discouraged, okay, If you admonish the discouraged, you will crush them. If you correct the debilitated, you will depress them. If you lecture the feeble, you will paralyze them. It would be like going to a doctor with a broken heart and they recommend heart surgery. Okay, it's just the wrong approach. It's not going to help. If we misdiagnose where a person is, we will often do more damage than good. Job's counselors come to mind. So I understand there's some biblical counseling interest in this church, and you're going to do these studies on Wednesday night with Pastor Michael. That's awesome. That's great. So I'm just going to take the liberty now. We're going to just have a biblical counseling training session right here today, right now. Okay, are you all ready? So everybody that's a Christian is a biblical counselor. You just didn't know it. Okay, you are. It just depends on how good of one you're going to be. So let's do some training today. Step one in biblical counseling Step number one is to ask questions and listen, okay? You got that down? Y'all are young and smart, so nobody here takes notes much. Everybody in my church is taking notes, you know, because we'll forget before we're out in the parking lot. Step number one is ask questions and listen. Step number two is ask questions and listen, all right? Now, once you've done steps number one and steps number two, now you are ready for step number three. Step number three is to ask questions and listen, all right? These are the first three steps of biblical counseling. Gather data. Gather data. And when you think you have enough data, you only have about half of what you need. That's how you diagnose. We tried to help someone recently in our family, and we didn't do this. We didn't gather enough data, and it was a train wreck. And if we had gathered enough data, we would have said this is beyond our scope of being able to help. Our heart was right. It was an innocent mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. Now, let's say that you did admonish the unruly. You got everything right. You got the right category. You did the right thing, and then she slapped you. Well, no, today's woman, she might have drop kicked you, right? Forget slapping. Or you admonished an unruly man and he gave you a curt thanks and slandered you behind his back. Or you tried to hold up a weak person, but they were just strong enough to push you away. Now, what do you do? That's proof number five. It's the last verse, verse 15. Proof number five is you never take revenge, but you continue to do them good. You continue to do them good. What did you expect was going to happen when you started mixing it up with other imperfect believers? It's like parenting. Okay, your little brother kicked you in the shins, but what did you do? Right? How did you respond? Never take revenge, continue to do them good. So some teenager thinks it'll be fun on a Saturday night to egg your house. And you catch him in the act. What do you do? You say, you will not get away with this. I'm going to bring you a pizza tomorrow afternoon. After you clean up my house. (laughs) And we won't be calling the police. I'm going to not take revenge. I'm going to do you good or you have a coworker who undermines a project at work don't say in your mind this means war say in your mind this means good or maybe you have a spouse that says something very cutting to you very hurtful that's going to happen in marriage don't say in your head okay you crossed a line this time say in your head i am under the cross and it's time to love When someone hurts you, make that person's welfare your number one concern in life. I think that's like best ever evidence of being like Jesus. Do you get that? You are hurt. My new number one concern in life is your welfare. Our big idea is simply this. God wants every believer to be deeply and lovingly involved in the lives of other believers it's proven and we demonstrate this by admonishing the insubordinate, by encouraging the faint hearted, by holding up the weak, by being patient with everyone, and by paying it forward instead of paying it back. I'm almost done. You may be sitting here thinking, Yeah, but isn't all that stuff Michael's job? Isn't that why we pay a pastor? to do the nitty-gritty hard work of ministry of admonishing and the faint hearted people and all of that. Isn't that why we have elders? Yes, it is. And they are to lead the way. They are to set the example. This is a great text for training elders to be elders. But, beloved, there are too many sheep and not enough elders. Wherever you go, that's going to be the case. And so it calls on the body of Christ. Or you may be thinking, look, I didn't sign up. <laughs> Ooh, I just want to come and sing some good songs, you know, <laughs> hear a sermon and get, get to my car. I just want to come and go. I didn't sign up for this. I'd say two things to that. If you're a Christian, you did sign up for it. If you've joined this church, you've really signed up for it because you took a covenant that said in part you will participate in these things. Another person might say, you know, I got my own junk. (laughs) Who am I to get involved in anybody's life? I'd say to you, you're going to always have your own junk. I got mine, you got yours. It's going to be there till glory. That's not a good reason. You may say, well, I don't know that person. That'd be awkward. I'm just not in a position to, to offer that kind of help. Then I would say, get to know that person, right? I know your pastor has said this in some emails. Come early if you can and hang around afterwards if you can. Get to know each other. Build trust. Finally, you might just say, Man, you have no idea what my schedule is. I've got kids going 16 directions and I'm working and I'm late and we've got all this stuff going on. I'm taking care of my parents or whatever. I I haven't got I haven't got any cushion. I ain't got any time for this kind of involvement. Well, I would say to you that love makes time. Love makes time. May we be a church. May we be churches, Grace Bible and Kerrville Bible, may we be churches that take seriously these commands to love one another in these practical ways. Let me pray. Father, I do ask your blessing, your growth, your protection your guidance on the leadership of this church and on the membership of this church. God, we thank you today that there are new folks here. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, encourage them to come back and continue to look and listen and search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Father, help us all to be sensitive as we live our life as this person in need of encouragement or help or admonishment or patience or just someone to do them good. Help us to be conduits of yours for the body of Christ. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.